may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, As we sing some songs together, uh, I just encourage you to be thinking about the words uh, and the meditations of your heart, uh, no matter whether we have a single guitar and a couple voices um, or a big band or whether you're by yourself or with others. um, Focus on your heart and posture toward God as we sing together. Sing praises to your name, praises to your name, the name that's so much higher than all names, and all Your name is life. 
for your faithfulness to us, God, for your steadfastness. God, we praise you. 
We thank you that you are never changing, God. Come be with us this morning and teach us from your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, well, hopefully you guys all have your Bibles opened. Um, if you don't, why don't you grab one or open up your app to Psalm 29. That's what we're going to be taking a look at. And before we jump into reading this psalm and unpacking it and looking at it and hopefully finding some incredible encouragement in it, um, I want to pose a question to you to think about, reflect upon. And the question basically is, how do you handle and manage or think about storms? I don't necessarily mean physical storms, though it could be physical storms. In the case of the psalm that we're going to read, it's probably a physical storm, no no doubt. Um, But I'm just talking storms, things that impose or bring chaos into your life, challenges, hardships, breaking, um, destruction, ruin. How do you you think about those things? How do you process them? Um, I think it's a really important question, especially obviously in the time that we have been in over the past several months of navigating kind of this global pandemic um, raises this bigger question of how do we handle it? How do we view it? And so what I want to um, invite you into as we read this psalm and we think about it is to really reflect upon that key question. Um, because I think as we read through the psalm, one of the things that we're going to begin to identify is that the psalmist has this frame of mind, this uh, worldview, if you would, or a lens by which he sees the world that allows him to see the storm as being more than just simply a chaos creating agent. Rather, He sees God um, high above the storm, somehow demonstrating grace and peace and order over all of it. And it's this amazing depiction. And in fact, most scholars think Psalm 29 is sort of this uh, classical example of a literary genius type of a psalm. It's so filled with so many different layers um, I spent a lot of time reading this, praying through it, thinking about it, studying it, listening to commentaries, um, people that have written about this, and uh, it's, it's mind-blowing. And if I just let loose and unpacked all the information on you, it would be way too much. It would be like drinking from a fire hose. So I have uh, specifically tried to just narrow it down to some key thoughts that I think would be a benefit and encouragement to each one of us. So you're welcome. All right. So what I want to do right now is I want to uh, begin to just look at one particular verse, and then what we will do is, after I look at this verse, we'll kind of go back in, break down the psalm, look at the psalm and its various components, and then hopefully find a lot of encouragement in it. So, with that being said, listen to what psalm, here we go, psalm 29 verse 10 states. It says this, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. Lord sits enthroned as king forever. This is sort of the summary statement of the psalm, which uh, again, we will get to kind of the basic components of it. But in summary, what the psalmist is looking at is that over all of the storm, over all of the chaos, God sits enthroned. And he uses uh, the language to describe God as king. This is a really important type of terminology that gets played out throughout the entire Bible. In fact, I would even describe it as a theme that God sits enthroned as king. Now, again, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is exceptionally good news. If you find God as an imposer in your world, someone that comes to bring uh, disruption or someone that is imposing his rule uh, over you, then you find yourself potentially uh, offended 
by this reality. This claim should not offend you if you are a lover of truth and goodness and grace in Jesus as the embodiment of all this. So what the psalmist, I think, wants us to begin to see is I want to begin to little, give a little bit of a backstory, I think, that the psalmist is probably writing from. Um, again, we'll look at some of the language in the verses in just a moment. But a lot of scholars think that what's probably happening here is the psalmist, potentially David, is writing this uh, from a vantage point of, say, for example, maybe like Mount Hermon in Israel. So there's this uh, series of mountain ranges, um, particularly right there in, uh, in the northern part of Israel. It, on the spot, you can actually look out and see the ocean. Um, you can see the, 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 the mountain ranges of way to the north, like in Syria. So it's a really unique position. So some scholars believe that this is sort of the location where the psalmist is writing this. And he's observing a physical storm, a gnarly storm coming in, uh, maybe even like a hurricane. And if you've ever been in the midst of some form of like very highly aggressive storm, you know how frightening it is. You know that it's not just like gentle rain like Portland, right? It's something that is so tragic and traumatizing. Um, I had an experience like that when I was a kid once where uh, we lived through a hurricane. And I still remember not only the moment of just trying to go to bed that night, but also waking up in the morning and just looking at the savagery that had just taken place throughout all the streets. Trees that were down, uh, leaves everywhere, just chaos everywhere. And this seems to be the situation where the psalmist is kind of describing um, the stage where there's a gnarly storm that's taking place. And as he's looking at the storm, he's placing God, Yahweh, in the very center of the storm. In other words, not as the one that is kind of creating the chaos, but the one that is over and above all of the chaos. So if you think of it this way, if you were to ask the question, what rules society? What rules the earth? I mean, there are things in a sense that we have control over, and then there's a lot of other things that we just simply do not have control over. Those things that we don't have control over that exercise some degree of authority or power or influence over us, we could use the language of saying they they have control. They, They are in charge. They have the power. And the Obviously, as human beings, there are moments where we look at things that are outside of our control, like a storm or like a virus or like a disease that has control over us. It has authority. Now, in the ancient mindset, uh, especially within the land of the East, you have uh, multiple forms of um, pagan-type religions that were sort of filling in the narrative of the landscape. In other words, uh, in that ancient world, there was a god, a deity by the name of Baal, B-A-A-L. And um, he was sort of the equivalent of the Greeks, Zeus. And so it was kind of like the god of thunder, the god of power, the god of the sky, in other words. So when you needed rain to come to water the earth, uh, to produce crops and growth and whatnot, uh, you would pray to Baal. And again, there is a series of other gods, a pantheon of gods. And so that was basically classified as kind of the pagan religions of the land or the, the, um, the landscape around in which the psalmist no doubt had lived. And uh, in other words, it was the narrative that was common within the landscape. We live in America. We don't necessarily worship Baal, um, but there are ideas and or narratives or stories that we basically say, this is how we got here. This is what rules the 
earth. This is what uh, influences humanity. This is what is in control, large and in charge. This is what the storyline is. And so in other words, uh, we also find ourselves wrestling with the larger pagan myths, if you would, even though we might not have idols that we bow down to or offer um, live sacrifices to, in a sense, as they would have done back in the ancient world. um, That's exactly what the psalmist is dealing. He's dealing with kind of the landscape and the language. And so this psalm has got so many different layers to it, which again, I'm going to refrain from just getting into all the minutiae of it and just really focus on the top layer that I think is so filled with a lot of encouragement. So again, the psalmist wants us to know first and foremost, that's the Lord who sits enthroned over the flood, whatever the flood is. He makes this assessment. God is over it. He goes on to say, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Again, in the ancient world, Baal, this pagan entity, deity, who had power, he would have sat as king over this. And in essence, what he's summoning the world to see is that Baal is not king. Yahweh is king. In fact, the word Yahweh, if you look in your Bible, look at the passage, you'll see the word Lord, probably all in capital uh, letters, capital L-O-R-D. Almost every single time you see that in your Bible translations, that's usually always the covenantal name for God, or Yahweh, we can describe it as. So I'm going to say the name Yahweh. So this is this word Yahweh is used actually 18 times. In fact, up until this point, out of 29 psalms, this psalm has more condensed usages of the word Yahweh than any other psalm up until this point. In other words, just from a cursory look at this psalm, um, this psalm is all about Yahweh. It's all about God. It's about how God rules and reigns over all things. And this is where it gets so good. So what I want to do is I want to break the psalm down as most scholars break it down in terms of looking at it, dissecting it. We don't want to dissect it too much because typically when you dissect something too much, um, you reduce it nothing more to a dead, uh, inanimate body on a table. Uh, This psalm is alive and it's intended to be alive. And so what I want to do is I want to basically give a title to this of praying through the storms that we face. In other words, asking the bigger question of what are the storms that we face and how do we in the midst of those storms have a uh, or adopt a mindset or a lens by which we can look at these things and realize they are not the ultimate king and lord and influencer and power over the universe, over our nation, over our neighborhoods, over our families, and over our lives. But Yahweh is. So that's what I hope to try to um, think about as we go through this. So I'm going to break it down into three sections. Number one, we'll take a look at verses one to two. It kind of breaks down naturally like this. It's basically a call to worship. Secondly, we'll take a look at verses three through nine, which is sort of the reasons, reasons that the psalmist gives as to why one ought to worship Yahweh. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at the conclusion. and We'll just kind of wrap it up with some final thoughts. So let's jump right in and begin to look at this. Number one, verses one through two, which is this call to worship. Listen to how he says this. So if you want, grab your Bibles and just follow along and listen to it. Because this is one of those psalms that I would highly recommend, maybe even when I'm done teaching, uh, as you sit around in your group, maybe just read the psalm. Have someone in your group just read the psalm all the way through. We're talking, it's 11 verses. It's not that lengthy. It'll probably take you no more than two minutes. 
Um, but I would highly recommend just listening to the psalm being read out loud. There's, there's something powerful about that. In fact, I would even suggest that much of this literature was actually intended to be read just like that. Not necessarily commented on, just read, listen to, process, and then repeat. To just meditate, and think about, and consider what the psalmist is saying. So, uh, verses 1 through 2 says this in the call to worship. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So first and foremost, what we notice is that this is the psalmist basically summoning what he describes as heavenly beings. Now, depending upon what Bible translation you have, there might be a different phrase that's used there. Um, it's the word in Hebrew, benai elim, um, or in some other translations or some Hebrew words, it, it's a derivation of the word Elohim, which basically means divine being. So this has raised a lot of questions as to who is he summoning? Who is he calling to give glory to God? And this is again where the layers get, begin to get uh, compounded and pretty amazing when you think about this. Some suggest he's talking to angels. Some would suggest he's describing some form of like a divine council or uh, some powerful beings that have some degree of, of authority and power over something. Who knows what? Others see this as kind of a play with sort of the pagan deities of the larger Canaanite uh, entity and society around him and some would even suggest that if that's the place that's happening or the play of what's happening here that he's kind of playing with this word is to basically say look all of you pagan entities and deities that are part of the Baal tradition I want you in this moment to rise and give God give Yahweh glory that's a bold bold in your face statement it's almost like he's calling them to a contest Let's prove which one is the true God. It's pretty bold. So, number one is this um, summoning to ascribe to God. It's a call. Give God the worship and the honor and the adoration and the glory that's due to his name. Ascribe to him the glory. Now, that's the call. It's the call, the invitation to look to God. Um, secondly, uh, we take a look at the reasons for worshiping Yahweh. And then he goes on in verse 3. This is verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. And the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So what we see now kind of in this new transition, it begins to pivot and focus a little bit on this element of God's voice. The word voice there can be also translated as the word sound. And again, what he's basically describing is that the voice, whatever the sound that he's listening to, again, imagine here he is on a mountaintop looking over the ocean, watching this massively building um, cold front or hot front or whatever it is that's beginning to kind of move in and it's scary. He's perhaps frightened by this situation and he doesn't know. Again, it's unpredictable. That's what a storm is. It's nothing more than chaos. It's a chaos agent if you want to think of it that way. And what he's looking at is that as the storm is beginning to build in his mind, perhaps maybe after the storm as he begins to recollect his thoughts and imagination over this, he begins to realize, man, it's the voice of God that's over the waters. Uh, the voice of God thunders. The Lord, Yahweh, is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. So that's one thought. Next thought he kind of moves into in verses 5 through 6. He says, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. 
the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Um, most of us, uh, I mean, our church is in California. So if you're tuning in from some other place, glad that you are here. But um, we are in California and just about an hour and a half north of us are these massively big trees that you can go up to in the region of Big Sur. And this was kind of similar to the landscape that he's referencing here, the cedars of Lebanon. They were these massive trees. And what he's uh, envisioning or describing is the voice of God just breaks these things. God speaks and these things snap. Um, this is profound. Baal doesn't do this. Baal might have power. The pagan deities might have power. The influencers of society might have power. But he envisions and in, in, in pictures God as being the one that has even greater power still over all of these things. That the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Uh, the reference to this uh, mountain range called Syrian is sort of a reference of mountain ranges in Syria. And perhaps is a reference to uh, Mount Hermon itself. Um, but the point of the matter is what he's envisioning is that as he is watching this storm come in, he's identifying that even though this thing is powerful, it exercises chaos and influence over the landscape. God still nonetheless is over this. All right, take a look at verses 7 through 8 now as this kind of reason for worshiping Yahweh continues. The voice of the Lord flashes forth fires. Perhaps uh, at that moment he's envisioning or thinking about the thunderstorm or the lightning storm that's happening. So he hears um, the thunder. He watches the lightning. He sees this profoundly um, terrifying situation that's taking place in front of him. And he imagines that the voice of the Lord, man, it's, it's just it's over the lightning and then he goes on to say, verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And he finishes with this little section, verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in, in his temple all cry glory. Uh, what most scholars kind of identify in here that's kind of fascinating as I was thinking about this. In ancient Babylonian and Canaanite cultures, but also even in ancient Asian cultures, um, there were four to five, in some cases, um, elements, uh, main basic elements that they, they looked at and they kind of deified. And we all know what they are, um, like wind, fire, earth, sea, in some cases sky. Um, in some cases, they kind of conflate a couple of them, so you get like four. But if you were to break it down into this four main elements, earth, wind, sea, and fire. Did, did you see the progression? that he would have been familiar with how ancient Canaanite people and Semitic people or uh, uh, people living in that region all right, of uh, Syria and people coming from Mesopotamia, people coming from Egypt, people that were part of that land and the pagan deities that they worshipped, he would have recognized and been familiar with the fact that they would have attributed some degree of deity or deification to these main elements, earth, right, the habitable space that we live on, uh, the sea, which in some cases was sort of uninhabitable, it was like a chaos. It was where all the chaos came from. Again, if you look at it, where the storm comes, it comes from the sea because that's where most storms come from. It's this image of chaos. Again, you got to think like an ancient Jew would have thought that out of the sea comes chaos. And yet, um, out of all of that, Yahweh is even greater than the chaos. He envisions even the wind and the fire. Yahweh is over all of these things. 
So again, this is an image of recognizing there are powerful agents at work, powerful forces at work in our lives, things that you and I are powerless against. And again, the question is, how do we, how do we view those things? Do we give them ultimate authority? Or do we look beyond them at the one who rides upon those things, the one who actually sits in the heavens and rules the earth, just like the psalmist said. Again, this is an invitation to adopt a mindset that might be foreign to you. That's, I would very clearly offer to say it's not an American mindset. This is a biblical mindset. This is a mindset that's filled with Yahweh. Because it's filled with Yahweh, it's filled with miraculous possibilities of intervention, of salvation, of hope. So listen to the conclusion of this. He goes on to say, verses 10 through 11, he says, um, kind of basically pronounces it in the form of a blessing. Again, we just read 10, but I'm going to read it again. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Uh, this reference to a flood is actually interesting. Um, again, perhaps he's sitting on top of a mountain and he's watching a flash flood take place, which is not uncommon. In fact, we were in Israel not too long ago, back in February, and uh, we were going into the region of the Dead Sea, and that's what they were concerned about, is that it doesn't rain there very often, but when it does rain, the ground can't um, soak up the water, so it just it becomes a flash flood. And uh, that can happen just like that. So perhaps he's seeing something like that. Perhaps he's also linking this language to the story in the book of Genesis of this flood. Uh, what's a flood? It's a chaos agent. It's something you have no control over. It's a thing that when it happens, anything caught within its parameters is destroyed. So where's Yahweh in all this? He says, Yahweh sits as king enthroned over the flood. He sits as king enthroned forever. But I want to pause right there before I finish up the last uh, sentence here. Um, so if we were to stop right now, this were to be basically the end of the psalm, what we would have is an image of God as being nothing but powerful. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. That's how powerful this is. The voice of the Lord causes these lions and these bulls of Bashan, which were um, believed actually to be an extinct animal now. But think of this massive, like, long-horned steer or a buffalo, this massive animal that was extremely large and terrifying, or a lion, which, again, a chaos agent. You are powerless against a massive bull and a lion. And yet, God speaks and... He has authority over even these things. So he's, all we would be left with is kind of like raw power. Raw power in an infinite entity or deity like God does not bring much comfort to us unless we have a reason to trust him or to be in partnership or covenant with him, if we are in opposition to him, in other words, if our lives are not in alignment with his, then we have every reason to be terrified. But that's not where the psalmist is at. And listen to how he finishes. And it's really powerful. He says, may the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The aim that the psalmist wants us as readers and meditators of this incredibly rich um, literature is to pause and reflect upon what Yahweh really wants to bring about in our lives, his blessing and peace. 
Uh, God uses his strength, his power to bring order out of the chaos, to bring peace out of the midst of crisis. This is what God does. So this word voice is interesting because it appears a few times throughout the Bible. So for example, in the beginning of the story of the Bible, Genesis, we see the story of Adam and Eve sinning, rebelling against God, running from God. And it says that uh, when they heard the voice of the Lord, they ran. So that's the first introduction that we see kind of after creation, God speaking, them running. Fast forward a little bit to the story of uh, the people of Israel, Moses, um, meeting God at the burning bush. And it actually says there's interesting language, vocabulary, the way it's used. He says, and um, Moses uh, saw the voice of God, which again, it's audible. And yet the way the Hebrew is describing it is he saw the voice of God. Um, all of these are unfolding um, images and pictures of what God's voice is. And it's not until we come to the New Testament that we see the degree to what God is doing and what the expression of God's heart ultimately truly is as God speaks. The book of John chapter one starts off with this. In the beginning was the word, the voice, the, the thought, the articulation of God. And the word was with God. The word was God. Skip on down to John chapter one, verse 14. It says, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the big question I want to finish with in this thought is how does God use his raw strength and power to terrorize? To aggressively destroy? Like a flood? That is just as impersonal a force of destruction? Well, we don't have to imagine what it, this God is like. Because in the person of Jesus, he is the fullness of God embodied. And what we see in Jesus is a God that comes into people's lives and he brings food where there was nothing but starvation. He brings hope where there was nothing but despair. He brings healing where there was disease. This is the God that uses his power to bring about blessing, ultimately to the point of the cross where God actually uses his power in the form of restraint rather than crushing his enemies. He allows himself to be crushed for his enemies. I don't know how you think about the power of God or how you frame the storms that you face in your life, but my hope would be that you would see them framed in the context of God's desire to bring blessing and hope and peace shalom out of your chaos. There was a guy by the name of uh, William Cooper, um, a famous uh, poet in England, and uh, he, was, he was a Christian. He was a guy that struggled a lot, though, in his faith, and there are multiple occasions that he found himself deeply uh, facing moments of incredible depression, and on several different occasions, at least three of them, he attempted suicide. On one occasion, he tried to go drown himself and the river that he tried to throw himself into wasn't deep enough, so he got up and realized I'm going to go home, and he uh, took some um, uh, drugs that would have ultimately killed him, and it didn't work. And then he ended up becoming friends with a guy named John Newton. Most of you guys know who John Newton is, or at least his song, Amazing Grace. He was a pastor. And in this duration of time, uh, becoming friends with John Newton, John Newton began to encourage him. The two of them kind of 
put their songwriting skills, their ability to write together. And John Newton became a really powerful force in William Cooper's life and was able to kind of nurse him back to some degree of mental health and ability to think uh, clearly and straight again and being able to make sense and not necessarily have all the answers, uh, but at least be able to discover the peace of God in the midst of his storm. And it wasn't until years later that as he was beginning to discover some degree of emotional mental health, he actually wrote these words. And I just want to read them and I want to finish with this thought. Uh, he wrote this song called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Some of you are probably familiar with it. I'm just going to read the first three lines of it. I'm going to finish. He says this, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. He, he wrote this in response to what he was discovering out of Psalm 29 and how to look at storms that threaten much chaos but God oftentimes, because he's Yahweh, he's not Baal, he's not bound by these forces, he's above them, he's able to use these forces to bring blessing and peace and shalom. So my invitation to you, no matter where you're at, whether you are a follower of Jesus or someone that is trying to make sense of the claims of Jesus, is to enter into by way of trusting this God that loves you and has given himself for you and to you. Uh, as we close... I want you to just maybe consider the storms that you're facing and ask God to show you himself in the midst of those things. So I want to pray and then we're going to segue into a final closing song. Jesus, thank you for your grace. We trust you to be the king over all things, including the storms. In Jesus' name, amen. Every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever say, You are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to the
of every song we could ever sing and worthy of all the praise we could ever bring you are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you we live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. You are worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. We live for you. that you surround us and provide us the protections. Uh, We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your presence. And we pray that as we enter a new week, you would provide all those things as we step forward, continue to serve you. So we just love you. Amen.